Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, brand worn by John McEnroe, Vitas Gerolitis, Novak Djokovic, and Gabriella Sabatini. Check them out, SergioTacchini.com. Use the code SHAP30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. We are on the ground at the Miami Open and have a special show for you today. My guest is the tennis writer for the New York Times. He is the senior editor for Racket Magazine. And he reported the Novak Djokovic fiasco from Melbourne, Australia for CNN. He's currently writing a book about Naomi Osaka. Ben Rothenberg is today's guest. And this is another current events special. So you're here essentially tailing the the Osaka campaign here at the Miami Open. Is that right? That's definitely 90 plus percent of my focus this year, yeah, is, is Naomi Osaka and working on this book and, and trying to follow her and, and understand her better and the phenomenon around her. And so far, so good. She's on, she's playing world-class tennis right this second, right this moment. Yeah, so we're recording this after her second round match, which was really impressive over Angelique Kerber, she lost her last 4-2. She was pretty dominant in that match. And yeah, things look good. You never know. I mean, one of the interesting things about Osaka is that she's had ups and downs, you know, very publicly on both ends, on court and off. And we don't know what's going to come around the corner at any given time. Uh, so I don't know what shape this the, this year part of the book will look like. But uh, yeah, it's, it's certainly been an interesting, different lens to look through the sport through. Gentlemen, you hear the preeminent journalist in tennis at the moment uh, put his feet down on the street in Melbourne, Australia during Joker Gate was on TV all day, all night uh, for CNN and other outfits. He is the writer for the New York Times and is the senior editor of Racket Magazine, of which I am a contributor. That is Ben Rothenberg, who is writing a book on Naomi Osaka. We are coming to you from one of the myriad of food courts inside the Hard Rock Stadium at the Miami Open. My man, it's so good to see you. Good to be here. Thank you for having me, Craig. Osaka. I mean, what did she say in her press conferences so far? That was interesting. Well, I think the big revelation so far in her press was that after Indian Wells and what happened there with her getting distressed in that second round match, that she started seeing a, a therapist. That was the thing um, I think was a really welcome revelation for a lot of people. And people, you know, one of the, one of the things that's pretty clear about Osaka is that so many people are pulling for her and are rooting for her and want her to be to be happy and to be well, as, whatever that means, and, and to also be playing good tennis. And, and those things are coming together this week. And so, uh, yeah, it's been, a, been an uptick for her for sure. What did she say specifically about this therapist situation? Did she uh, expand? She didn't give too many details on it, um, and maybe we'll find out more at some point. And obviously, but also, you know, give her, that's a rel- you know fairly private issue in a lot of ways. So want her to be able to talk about it at her own pace, at her own comfort level, and not not pry too much there. Um, yeah, but it's something that just started recently in New York, so very new for her, and something that she kind of maybe hinted that she thought about since the French Open last year when she pulled out after her issues there with the the media and talking about mental health uh, struggles that she'd had there as well. So yeah, so it, it, it's positive news. That just sort of was the main sort of big takeaway. And c- connectedly or not, she's playing really well right now. So that's good to see. Um, body and mind, all, as you know, go together very closely in tennis. Well, listen, man, she played Angie Kerber yesterday. That's essentially a grand, a major semifinal final, and she routined her. It was uh, a fierce, wicked Blew her off the court destruction. 
Yeah, and not only that, that's a better win than it looks like on paper even because she lost her last four in a row to Kerber and she'd lost her last three to lefties. She had a lot of problems against lefties last year. She lost to the Olympics to a lefty, Cincinnati, U.S. Open, to Von Josheva, to Teichman, to uh, Leila Fernandez. So this was a, a big win for, in a lot of ways. And now the draw has actually opened up a lot on the top half of the women's draw. There's not that many seeds left, although Osaka is in a bit of a tougher part than the top quarter, which is completely uh, abandoned, essentially, from, from known names. Uh, yeah, so it's an uh, interesting moment for her. But, you know, just most of all, it just seems like she's in a positive place mentally, which is the most important. Uh, the genesis of your book, the crux of your book, what is this book? So it's a, it's a, a book, you know, about Naomi, but from, hopefully from a pretty holistic, panoramic uh, perspective and still taking shape, still don't, can't, you know, tell exactly what's in it because I haven't written, you know, much of it at all at this point, but it's still, uh, you know, trying to introduce her to people and explain her to people and understand what, why she's so resonant, why she's been such able to reach this sort of platform she has. It's really, she's by far the biggest star in my time in tennis that I've seen created from, you know, when I was in the sport to present. You know, she, and that's going back like, gosh, like 10, at least 10 years now. Like, you know, the Williamses, the big four were already kind of around, um, but Naomi's done something. She's much younger than them. She's a solid 10 years younger than all those people. And, and she's very much of her generation and does things in a very different way. So I just want to sort of try to understand for myself just because she's someone who I'm pretty fascinated by. Uh, the phenomenon of her and where she came from, where she's going, what she means to people, all those sorts of things. Cooperation. Who's cooperating? Who isn't? Give me something. Come on. People are cooperative. I'll say that. I don't want to get too much into that, but people are cooperative and, and you know, people are also, some people are, you know, uh, hesitant or don't know quite what to say sometimes about Naomi because she's a complicated figure in a lot of ways, um, but definitely there's been a good amount of cooperation and excitement for the project. Ben's keeping it in his pocket. Now, listen, you know, as we normally do, we do a five-set format. We're not going to do that today. This is current events. There's a lot. I mean, tennis has been making news left, right, and center, and I don't feel like there's any person better to talk about it with than you. So um, this is current events coming from the Miami Open. First and foremost, Ash Barty announces retirement. She essentially dipped on the uh, the sunshine double and it felt like something was up yeah yeah no her statement that she put out about the reasons why she was withdrawing from mini wells in miami didn't really add up it didn't sort of pass a, a pretty basic smell test in some way she said that her she hadn't recovered physically from the australian open is what she said which just didn't make a ton of sense because she had the least physical australian open of anyone basically wanted ever she didn't drop a set she only played singles sometimes she played singles and doubles she had no injuries that anyone was aware of so I, I mean, I thought it was possible. Maybe she just, you know, took a bunch of time off to celebrate and didn't get back in shape or something like that. That would be different. That's not what she said. So anyway, so I was, my, you know, wheels were already sort of turning a bit. Like something might be up. Maybe she's not playing uh, for a while or some, something else is going on. But I didn't, I didn't, gotta say, I didn't really think that she was pulling the record as immediately. And she hadn't planned to at that point, I guess, until she was going to play this uh, Slovakia versus Australia Fed Cup tie that was, or date the Billie Jean King Cup. I think everyone still says both all the time now to try to transition period into the new name. Uh, this tie that was happening in Brisbane in April, I think that was intended at that point as to be her farewell event. Um, but because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a few things got rejiggered in the draw for that tournament, that competition, and that and Australia moved up and Slovakia got promoted as well, so there was no tie, and so Nash Barty's done. So another weird eventuation of the Russian invasion is that Ash Barty doesn't get her farewell event in Brisbane. It's just, uh, you know, weird times. 
What do you say about Ash Barty? What do you say about her rocket ship to the sun and and the and now she's she's finished it? I am reminiscent of Lorena Ochoa, the golfer who was the most dominant golfer and just shut it down. Married a heavy guy and just stopped. I, I, don't, I don't know how heavy Barty's fiance is, but I, I do think that, you know, it's hard being number one. It, this is not like, as much as people go out there and see you playing a game and, you know, sort of fun version of it, especially the slicing and the, you know, the sort of classic throwback joy of, of Barty's tennis. There's a ton, a ton of work physically, mentally, the, emotionally that goes into maintaining that spot and to achieving the level of excellence that Barty did. It's a job. Being a pro tennis player is a job. And it's a hard job. And it's a really hard job. And Barty did it for years, especially in the second version of it. Made a lot of money. Made, you know, some eight-figure amount of money in this time. And said, I've had enough. And said, I, I, I don't have what the drive in me and the sort of will in me to keep going at this really tough job. The way that I would need to do it to be satisfied with it. So I'm, so I'm content. I'm, I'm stopping. I've, I've done enough. And, and, and not like enough as in I've had too much, but I'm just satisfied with what I have. And I think that's, you know, something that's really... Uh, potentially pretty powerful you know in this in this era of insatiability for athletes where you know we look at Tom Brady just being like addicted to playing football and that's I understand people celebrating that and that's that's admirable in its own ways but seeing someone who can be content in this world where everything is about more 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 all the time I think is really really pretty cool did you have any inside information when this thing dropped did you know that something was Uh, up except no not really honestly they kept this pretty tight I think even the WTA didn't know about it until a few hours before it happened. Uh, it was something that they did keep pretty pretty tight. Is the WTA sad? Are they, you know, there's a new sponsor. Hologic is this new big sponsor. Does, does something like this, you know, sort of rattle the sponsor? Are there issues of, you know, of, of their best player in the world dipping like that? Certainly for, it's, it's not welcome news, I guess, for the business of the WTA, for sure. Uh, having the person who is their clear number one, who is on this hot streak, who just won the last major, to bow out very abruptly. But she did it also in, on really good terms in a lot of ways. And I think that was the reaction from her peers. There wasn't a lot of, I, I hadn't heard any single person have a reaction that I would characterize as being angry with her. Um, not one bit. Uh, some people are disappointed, but sort of, but also acknowledging they're happy that she's happy. Um, and WTA, you know, as a pretty small business people gotta remember WTA is not a big company it's a small business they they appreciate I'm sure what she did and that they had her at all and that she leaves you know created this high in Australia which was a great moment for them and better to have had her than than not had her at all I think is is sort of an optimistic way of looking at it from Hologic's point of view they weren't banking on Barty necessarily as being particularly the face of of the sponsorship They, they have a pretty wide-ranging thing and it's also t- you never know with these sponsorships how much the top top stars are actually going to be buying into the tour sponsorships a lot of times they have so many of their own uh, irons in the fire that are paying them directly that they don't do as much for the tour sponsors so we'll see i i don't think it's i think it's i think it's tough from a narrative perspective for fans and maybe for media especially like where do we go from here actually it could work pretty well with what Fiontech is doing uh, especially if she's a good run at this tournament to, and she gets number one if we're recording this uh, on Friday if she wins her first match she's number one officially uh, that would be a pretty good continuity and she's someone who I think is a pretty great heir apparent already has her slam at the 2020 French Open even if it wasn't in the last calendar or, you know 52 week cycle uh, she's shown what she can do and yeah I, you know the sport's going to endure we've seen that on all sides like you know you have a like Indian Wells for the men for example Novak Djokovic isn't there, okay, whatever. Medvedev loses early, okay, whatever. 
And then you have the eventual thing is Taylor Fritz, who's like the first American champion in 20 years, and it's like something cool that people can celebrate and get excited about. Like, and in, I think the U.S. Open was a great example of it too. Like for the women at the U.S. Open last year, you didn't have Serena. Uh, Naomi crashed out pretty early, and then people were like, oh no, what's going to happen? And then you have this like juggernaut final between these two teenage girls pretty much no one had heard of before in Leila Fernandez and Emirat Kanu, and it's setting ratings records, and it's a massive deal in Britain. The sport will endure. The sport's gone through many generations and iterations of it. And that's what Nadal was saying when the joke of the trauma is going on in Australia. Like, no player is bigger than this tournament. These tournaments will be were here before us. They're going to be here after us. And that's kind of, you know, not cynically, but that's sort of my view on, on Barty, too. Like, the sport is, a, is great at generating stars and stories, and the, the carousel keeps, keeps turning. The beat don't stop. The tennis keeps going. That is it. Uh, Radicanu and Layla Fernandez are not in this tournament anymore. They both lost. They are not dominating tennis. The fact of the matter is on any given day in women's tennis, anybody can win. Are you hearing any interesting things out of those camps about why they're struggling? I mean, they're both so new. I mean, they both just did things ahead of schedule, especially Radicanu. Radicanu's barely played on tour. I mean, that was what, what she did made was so remarkable at the New York. I mean, she's now going to prepare for, for the clay season now that her Miami tournament is over, and she's never played a tour-level match on clay. Like, never once. And she wasn't even close to getting in rankings-wise. The last time there was a clay season, she was in the 300s or something. So, so, so she's brand new, and it's tough for her because she has this bright spotlight on her. Uh, there's a lot of people who are critical of her for getting sponsorships, which I don't think is really fair. I think it would be irresponsible for her not to take sponsorships, that, you know, because she's still brand new. In a lot of ways, people are saying, like, stop modeling and start playing tennis. Like, she is playing tennis, and she's playing. There's still flashes of, of being a very talented player in these matches, and she's losing some tight physical matches, and she's still just a, a teenager and, and not especially a you know, robust one. There was a stalker after the U.S. Open. Can you speak to that, and did that impact her tennis? I can't speak to that too much. I know there was reports of that. That's sadly, unfortunately, not that uncommon a phenomenon in women's tennis. A lot of the top players have had these sorts of issues um, with with people stalking or getting too close or uncomfortable or just making them uneasy. Um, I don't know how much that's actually affected her, her tennis. She's had multiple coaching changes. Can you speak to that? Yeah, well, yes, yeah, she has had a ton of coaching changes, and I was really, honestly, very surprised the way that she immediately was moving on, wanting a new coach right after the U.S. Open when she was playing a perfect tournament, winning 10 matches through qualifying uh, without dropping a set. Uh, it does seem to be a lot of... And she had this coach, Torben Belts, who was a longtime coach of Angie Kerber, most famously, uh, for this whole year. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, she's still figuring things out. And, you know, it's, it just happens. It's, it sucks for these players, whether it's, you know, obviously uh, Radicanu, whether it's Anna Ivanovic, whether it's Jeannie Bouchard, or whether it's uh, Anna Kornikova, who have a, a success early to get attention for them. And then the attention gets so big, and then when they don't match this incredible success they had early, they're seen as, like, flops in some way. And I think that's really unfair. I think – I hope that people are patient with Radukana. I hope she's patient with herself. She was pretty down after her loss yesterday. And, yeah, I just hope – I hope that people are, are easy on her and just appreciate that it's still really cool to have a, a 19-year-old, 18-year-old, whatever – 19, I think, now – in the you know top 20 of the WTA, it's still a pretty big achievement. She was very down after her loss. She lost to Sydney Alcova in a tight three-setter. I think she had match point. Yeah, she's and she's come close to these matches, and she was just clearly just frustrated, and she wants to win, and she wants to prove that she, you know, isn't what people are claiming she is on social media about being a you know one-hit wonder already and stuff like that. And so these things do mean to her, and the pressure does get her like it would to anybody. Yeah. 
question for you regarding men's tennis. Rafa Nadal, uh, incredible effort at the top of the year. Won 20 straight matches until uh, he lost to Taylor Fritz in the Indian Wells final. Carlos Alcaraz and Rafa played an epic first match. The, the whole thing was uh, electric on that side of the draw. What do you say about 35-year-old Rafa? It was a great run. I mean, what he did to start the year was incredible, doing that kind of dominant performance on hard courts. At this stage of his career, it's not something anyone really saw coming. He was very excited about it. In his own way, he doesn't really sort of, you know, you got to think of giddy uh, publicly about this stuff, but he was, and his team, were really, really happy with how he started the year. And it was incredible to see him taking the moment in Australia uh, with Djokovic out to really seize the day and, and, and beat Medvedev in that incredible final, then back it up in Acapulco. He'd already won a title before that in, in Melbourne, the ATP, which is a really small, rinky-dink kind of draw, actually, in a lot of ways. But then, you know, he comes to Indian Wells and keeps backing it up, and then, unfortunately, in this weird, physical, windy match against Alcaraz, he suffers some, uh, you know, a torso injury or, or uh, a, a, a thorax injury of some kind, like a, a rib uh, tear, some sort of muscle between his rib, costal. I don't know that part of the body that well. Uh, doesn't usually get injured in tennis, but something about straining that, uh, he's out now for four to six weeks. So that's a rough a rough thud for which his soaring, uh, you know, run to, to finish. Um, but, yeah, but he, he, it, was, it was a joy to see him uh, in this in this first few months of the year. He was absolutely the story of men's tennis. Alexander Zverev. Alexander Zverev had most recently scared and smashed his racket in Acapulco three or four times on the umpire's chair. He was subsequently thrown out of that tournament he was subsequently given fines and a suspension that nothing held. It was like a phantom uh, punishment. Can you speak to that? I mean, I can certainly speak to this, that and the, and the trends of ATP phantom sort of punishments more largely. I mean, they really... Players complain about the ATP being half players and half tournaments because they think they're not getting a fair shake. But if anything, it seems that the players are getting way, way too easy of a ride on the discipline side of things. This would not happen in any other sport. Uh, what we're seeing, you know, we saw two incidents at the Miami Open yesterday. Uh, one with Jensen Brooksby throwing his racket and hitting a, a ball kid around the ankles. And then uh, Jensen, uh, not, uh, sorry, Jordan Thompson uh, hitting the ball, uh, doing a ball abuse that sort of the, a ball girl like had to like really duck out of the way of. And I don't know if it would actually hit her, but she was clearly like frightened in this moment of this ball that he was launching in anger. And these sort of explosions of anger we see on court that go unchecked, we, you know, Nick Kyrgios that... Uh, Indian Wells chucking his racket and bounced up and, and Balkan had to duck out of the way of that as well. You know, there's a level of recklessness and irresponsibility uh, that is that players feel entitled to exhibit right now that's not being checked by the tours and it's not leading anywhere good. It's going to keep ramping up so long as it gets unchecked. And other even like procedural things like uh, Novak Djokovic had a late withdrawal from Indian Wells and uh, by the rules of the ATP should have been... Uh, punished by getting suspended from his next best uh, uh, Masters event, the way it works. And so it would have been Paris-Bercy, he would have been forced to miss had the rules been actually applied. But he appealed it for some reason that I don't know what his appeal was, and it was granted to him, and so no suspension for that either. And that's, like, very clearly in the rules. Like Again, I don't know what the grounds of his appeal were, but the rules should be pretty black and white. So there's just this complete refusal to enforce consequences on these players, and that's actually maybe one unintended benefit of like the sort of PTPA, independent player body model, uh, that's been talked about, is that maybe then the ATP could actually be independent and actually treat them like a real league and actually meet out some suspensions and stuff. Because it just does not help the sport. Like, and these, uh, you know, maybe Djokovic is a different level than the other guys. He definitely is in terms of like star power. But like, 
it's not worth it to the tour to keep someone like Zverev in the draws at Indian Wells in Miami. Like the sport does not need the tournament does not need him. What it does need is to show that it actually cares about this issue. This is putting off a lot more people than it is putting people in the stands to have one more top ten guy, you know, in the draw. Well, what he did was scary. Uh, it was remarkably disrespectful to the chair umpires that bust their ass, you know, calling these matches. And they must feel really, really slighted and insulted and disrespected. I would certainly feel that way. Yeah, that's definitely that's how I would feel, not feeling that the tourists is abandoning them, not looking out for their safety at all. If there was an umpire union, this would be a great reason to strike. Um, and it's tough also because the umpires are supposed to be neutral, so they're, to take, they're not really in a great position to take an anti-player stance as, as sort of their jobs are, are you know, written out. So it's, it's tough for them. I, I think that, yeah, but we see this in, a lot in, in general, this sort of level of animus and disrespect really growing uh, since the pandemic. And I think a lot of it does have to do with the automated line calls. I think for some reason that it's just sort of dehumanized the, the experience on court and makes the players just angrier and at the few humans who are there and just more careless. I personally, I don't like it. I would like to see the line judges come back. I think the Hawkeye Live is not a great viewer experience. I think it's not a, it maybe, you know, no, bring it, get rid of it. So. That's interesting. I had not thought of that, that the lack of bodies on the court, lack of the human calls, red line calling, is somehow exacerbating some behavior. It's a theory. You know, yeah, yeah. It, it, I mean, it's, it's, it seems to be that way, and that the players, especially because um, when they do, because it's not 100%, right? So at this point, the, the Hawkeye Live, so... For example, Zverevin Acapulco was playing on a court without a challenge system and with line judges. Um, and there was a line judge on that sideline who made the call in, and then the chair empire didn't overrule it. So two different humans made this call. And on the video, it doesn't even look like an obviously wrong call. It's like, it looks like it comes close to the line. I think it probably hit the line. I think he was probably wrong about the call from the angles I've seen, but whatever. But his reaction to it was so completely disproportionate and just outraged. And the players also, I think, don't realize that the machines are not perfect either. And they sort of, the machines are definite and they're final and they're conclusive and decisive, but they're not necessarily more accurate than people. We really don't know that. You reported and wrote a two-part story mm-hmm. about essentially physical abuse uh, that Alexander Zverev abused a, a, a former girlfriend. First was reported and written in Racket Magazine, then in Slate. There was an investigation supposedly conducted by the ATP. Where has that story landed? Uh, yeah, so the, I reported on the allegations from his ex-girlfriend, Olga Sharipova, and uh, ATP didn't acknowledge it for, gosh, about like 11 months after. Could you give a quick uh, synopsis, uh, cliff notes on what the allegations were, what, what you reported, please? I think people can read the stories. I don't want to rehash them too much here, honestly. But, um, yeah, uh, ATP... Uh, a few months after the second story said that it was launching an investigation into it. That was in October of last year, um, and that investigation is still ongoing. Um, I've heard a couple things about you know making progress, but it's obviously going very slow, and there's not a lot of transparency from them, and uh, this whole time, Zverev is, is playing on, uh, which I know it frustrates a lot of, of fans who feel like the issue is not being addressed seriously. Um, so we'll see what the ATP comes up with. It's obviously, I think the, the, the main problem is taking so long to address it in the first place. I mean, they did not acknowledge the allegations against him uh, for, I think, what, like 11 months after they were initially made in October 2020. So that, that's not really acceptable. 
where are we at in Jokergate? Where is the Novak Djokovic saga at at this moment today? You know, moving into the weekend of the Sunshine Double, last, you know, it's an incredible thing that this, that the greatest player, it's arguably the greatest player, is nowhere to be found. Yeah, no, he's he chose not to get vaccinated. It's always been his choice. It was always completely within his control to be at the Australian Open, to be at Indian Wells and Miami. Tournament he's done very, very well at in his career and would be the favorite to win. Um, I think it sucks for his fans, honestly, that he they haven't gotten to watch him barely at all this year. And it's just going to depend on like what the rules are for vaccination in these various European countries coming up. And I'm honestly sick of trying to figure out the rules of those. I don't really pay too much attention uh, to what the immigration rules or the vaccine rules are, are for, for businesses or whatever in these various European countries because it only really affects one guy. Um, and I just don't want to devote that much time to him being an outlier. Uh, but I think he, as, it, as I understand it, he might be able to play some of these tournaments coming up in Monte Carlo, Madrid, Rome, potentially, uh, French Open. The rules are always changing. You never know what kind of variants are going to come out or things like that. Um, so it's not definite, but he'll come back soon, I, soon enough, I guess. The Miami Open is, you know, taking a lot of heat, a lot of body blows uh, on social media from friends and colleagues and <laughs> others that are hurt that the tournament is no longer at Crandon Park in Key Biscayne. I have experienced this tournament now here twice, and I might be an outlier. I love the tennis tournament. I think it's cool. Uh, where are you at on the uh, Key Biscayne versus uh, Hard Rock Stadium tête-à-tête? Yeah, there certainly does seem to be a lot of nostalgia for, for Key Biscayne from certain corners. Um, and I think a lot of that is really over-romanticizing uh, what Key Biscayne was. I do think that Key Biscayne had undeniably a great stadium court. Really cool, old stadium court, very intimate venue, great atmosphere, got lots of energy in that sense, especially for night session. There were some really great electric matches. Obviously, the whole you know Latin fan element there who really brought a lot of unique vibes to the tournament as well, and they were all around the grounds too. Um, that's still, that still can be here when those players are here. Um, but... I like this venue on the whole more as the place. Certainly a geographically based location. Key Biscayne, way, way on the far edge of the country, really, on the tip, after the tip of Miami. Uh, traffic nightmare to get there. Only convenient hotels were in downtown. One road in, one road out. People seem to forget how vicious and brutal it was to get onto that island and get off that island. Yeah, and the, the sort of one of the upsides for people romanticize with these like big overhead photos is, oh, look, it's so near the beach. But it's like maybe 500 yards from the beach, uh, the tournament grounds. And what good is that to anybody? Like you couldn't see the beach from the tournament, really. And you uh, aren't going to the beach when you're at a tennis tournament. So the fact that there's something interesting nearby that no one really went to is not really a meaningful benefit. This is in basically where the Hard Rock Stadium is, formerly Joe Robbie Stadium, where the, uh, the Dolphins play, where the Marlins used to play, where the Orange Bowl is held, is much more centrally located in terms of the population of southeast Florida, uh, right on the edge of uh, Miami-Dade and Broward counties, uh, between sort of, you know, can pull from Fort Lauderdale, can pull from Miami as well, and all the other sort of suburbs in there. Uh, attracts a much bigger population base more easily uh, near the near the freeways. Uh, attracts a much more diverse population base uh, potentially, um, and the grounds that they built up here, this massive footprint of land, um, they built some really cool stuff on. It. They imported all these palm trees, which look nice. They, uh, they have pretty good food options, much more spaces to sit around to eat. The grounds. So, so I, when I said nice things about the old stadium, 
uh, in Crandon Park. That was nice. The rest of the grounds were pretty crappy. And actually, a lot of the grounds here still, like, whatever whoever's doing these, this tournament does not really feel like good sight lines for courts. Even on the outer courts, still the sight lines are just weird here. They don't, they're not well-constructed outer courts uh, from a viewing perspective, and they're often weirdly small seats and just at weird angles and just, like, a lot of it doesn't work. The, the main stadium in here, I think, is kind of a cool architectural marvel. I actually don't think that the place where we have to sit most of which is in the permanent part of the, seat, the seating bowl, uh, the Dolphin Stadium, is not built for tennis. The slope of the seats is not right at all. They're way, not steep enough at all, so you're really far back from the court and just don't have a great angle. So, so, but if you get into the three built-up sides of the stadium, then that's pretty good. That's a nice steep grade. That part's good. The grandstand court is pretty good. Uh, so it can use improvement, but overall, I think there's a lot of reasons for it to be better than the, the other place. I'm telling you, it's good vibes out on the streets out there. It's good vibes out there, isn't it? The streets meet in the outer courts? The courtyards, the food courts, the, the, the practice court situation is cool. I think I like, the, I like you know, my dad's from Miami, I, or Miami Beach, technically. Uh, I have, you know, some, a soft spot for the city in a lot of ways. Um, but I think the vibe, I just came from Indian Wells, I think the vibe here is much less pretentious. It's, uh, you know, much more diverse crowd, which I appreciate. Uh, there's more energy and sort of, you know, yeah, it, it, it just feels more inclusive in a lot of ways. And, and yeah, they capture that in the, in the city as well. There certainly could be fine-tuned, like I said. A bunch of the actual, like, court designs could be better. Um, and I think more players should consider staying in, like, Fort Lauderdale or things like that to make their commutes easier because they complain about the commutes from downtown Miami. Uh, but for me, it's a, it's a nice place to be. It's weird. It's, it certainly feels like a tournament that's wearing, like, a shoe. Sometimes it's, like, not the right size. Like, it's way too big. But also they do a lot of incredible things in the, in the building of the stadium itself. There's so much square footage inside this building. They give all these players, like, all the top players get their own suites because they just have spare suites in the stadium for, that they have empty. So, like, if you walk down that part of the of the core concourse, you see, like, Yannick Center, Casper like, all these, like, as, like, like dressing rooms almost, essentially, like a sort of Hollywood star thing, but on the suites, their names. Um, uh, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's, it's a cool place. And I, it's also people should be grateful for this tournament because if it wasn't for this location, it would have left Florida or it would have left Miami. You know, this tournament was on its way out. It was a not, the government put up a lot of red tape in Crandon Park. Crandon Park was not sustainable. It'd be cool to see something like a, a, a Davis Cup tie or a, a Billie Jean King Cup tie or something be in that space. It is still a cool, a cool municipal stadium for something. Uh, but for this kind of tournament, not wasn't going to work. Ben Rothenberg, so good to see you. Where do we see you next? What's your schedule like? Well, I'm working on this book, so I'll be home a lot, you know, churning out actually writing and then trying to be on the road a bit. Um, no, so I'm, I'm staying, staying nimble. It's my first time writing a book of this scale, so still trying to figure it out as I go along. Do you go to Paris? I think so. Well, so maybe we'll see you uh, somewhere in some arrondissement uh, for, uh, you know, some moulet frites. I don't know. That, I love an arrondissement. Sounds good. Ben Rothenberg, thank you for the time. Always really a pleasure. Was really kind of proud of you in the work you did in Australia. It was a great effort. Thank you, Greg. Ben Rothenberg, you are released. Huge thank you to Ben Rothenberg and thank you to Sergio Tacchini. See them at SergioTacchini.com. Use my code SHAP30 in all caps at checkout to receive 30% off of your order. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.